Well, if you have your Bibles with you today, will you follow me to Romans chapter 4? Romans chapter 4, and we'll be reading verses 18 through 25. So we'll finish up chapter 4 today. Romans chapter 4, verses 18 through 25. And the Bible says, In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so your offspring should be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the the words it is counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our our trespasses, and raised up for our justification. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you once again for the privilege and opportunity we have to be in your house, to worship you, and to study your word. And we trust, Lord, that as we study this morning, this section of the book of Romans in chapter 4, that you would use the person of the Holy Spirit to guide us into truth. Father, for those who are lost who will hear this, that they would come to faith in Christ. And those who are saved, Father, that our faith will be strengthened because of the truth of your word. And that we would live and walk and act differently in this world because of who you are and what you have done on our behalf. And Father, we just ask that you would use this vessel to bring glory and honor to your holy name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as you know, Paul has been using the example of Abraham to help us understand this concept of salvation by faith alone, this righteousness that comes by faith in Christ apart from the law of God. And we have seen in this chapter already that Paul has reiterated the truth that Abraham was saved by faith alone. It was not by any works that he had done, not by the works of the law, because the law hadn't even come when Abraham was around. We also saw that Abraham was not saved by any sacrament or ceremony. Uh, he, he was counted righteous before he became circumcised. And so at the end of this chapter, Paul is using Abraham one more time to illustrate for us the nature of this saving faith. What does this kind of faith that Abraham has look like? And how is that important to you and I as we in the 21st century endeavor to follow after uh, Christ and find this righteousness that is apart from the law by faith alone in Christ Jesus? And so as we look at this chapter, the the most important word in this chapter, I mean, there are a lot of words that are important, but 
the key word, I guess, is this idea of faith. That's what we're going to be exploring this morning. What is faith? Well, in the Greek, it's a very simple word. Uh, pistis is the noun form, and pistuo is the verb form. Uh, and this word, that simple little word, faith, that we translate in the English, or believe, if uh, some translations may have, it's used over 600 times in the New Testament. And Paul uses it 60 times in the book of Romans, either the noun or verb form. Both are used uh, 60 times in the, in the book of Romans. So it, I think it's important for us, for a word that is used that frequently, that we ought to understand what this faith is. We talk about faith a lot. Uh, we claim to be people of faith. What does this saving faith look like? And well, we're going we're gonna to ex- explore that and unpack that in this section of Scripture about two headings. One, we will look at the attributes of saving faith or the nature of this saving faith. And then secondly, we'll look at the application of this saving faith as it relates to our context, our present day. Uh, how do we benefit from what God has done in Christ Jesus, how do we uh, have this same faith that Abraham would have? So that leads us to point number one, this at, the attributes of saving faith. <clears throat> and in, in this section of Scripture, Paul uses seven different phrases to help us understand what this saving faith looks like. We're, we're going to look at it in six uh, headings. Uh, one of those Headings has two phrases combined because I think they are really linked uh, together. A lot of people div- uh, divide it out into the seven, but I think we can combine those that one phrase, and we'll talk about that when we get there. So the first thing we see is in the first phrase in verse 18. What does this saving faith look like? Well, Paul says, and depending on your translation, the, the gist of it ought to be the same, in hope, meaning Abraham now, in hope, he believed against hope. So the first attribute of this saving faith is that saving faith looks beyond human inability. Saving faith looks beyond human inability. So what does it mean that Abraham hoped against hope, if you will? He, he hoped believing against hope. Well, hope in and of itself is the desire for something to take place, right? We hope for, we long for something to occur. Well, God had made Abraham a promise. God had promised to Abraham that I'm going to give you a seed, an offspring, and that offspring is going to be the start of a multitude of offspring. Many people, many kings are going to come from this offspring. You're going to be the father of many nations. Well, at that particular time, Abraham had no offspring, right? Uh, probably, and again, my, my numbers may be off a little bit, but he, he, he was probably 70-ish whenever God called him uh, from Ur of Chaldees. And his name, Abram, at that time, meant uh, exalted father. Well, even though his name meant exalted father, he was the father of none. He had Zippo uh, as it related to offspring. And God had, had promised him that there was an offspring. And he was already an old man. 
And then when God reiterated this promise, you know the story of Abraham along the way. Uh, Abraham and Sarah decided they needed to help God out a little bit, in particular Sarah. And she says, hey, why don't you go to Hagar and you guys have a baby and let's see if we can't help God out with this offspring that comes. Well, when that happened, the boy was born. Some years later, God came back to Abraham, probably when Ishmael was about 15 years old, 14, 15, teenager-ish, and says, hey, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. And he changes Abraham's name. He says, Abraham, no longer you're going to be called Abram. You're going to be called Abraham, which is a father of multitudes. Well, can you imagine? At that point, he was the father of one, not the father of multitudes. And Abraham looks at his own life and his own human inability and the human inability of Sarah and his context that he was in. And he had to come to the conclusion, if this is going to happen, it's going to happen because God is going to make it happen. Because there is no way that Sarah and I can accomplish this task that God has promised. So he hoped against hope. There was no hope in his physical body. There was no hope in Sarah's physical body. The only hope he had was that God said it and God would be faithful to what he had said. So saving faith has to get to the point where it hopes beyond our human inability. Because when it relates to salvation, you and I already know, Paul has made it very clear in Romans that we have no human ability to make us right with God. There is nothing in us or anything that we can do or perform that would cause us to find favor with God. So our hope, if it is in ourselves, is a pitiful hope. We must get to the point, if we're going to attain this saving faith, we must come to the point where we realize that there's nothing that I can do. There's nothing in me that can bring favor before God. It's all of what God has said and what God has done. Saving faith looks beyond human inability. Secondly, saving faith believes God. It's as simple as that. Look at what the next phrase is in a verse, uh, a couple phrases in verse 18. The Bible says that he should, just to begin again, it says, In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. And here's the phrase that jumps out. As he had been told. And then Paul quotes what God says to him. So shall your offspring be. God had made a promise. God had made a declaration to Abraham and Abraham believed God. That's the simplicity of saving faith. It realizes there is no hope in us. There's nothing in us, no power in us that can accomplish what God had promised. And we just believe and take God at his word. Abraham was looking down the corridors of time to the promise that God was ultimately making that there was a coming seed who would bring redemption to all of humanity. And Abraham, in spite of his circumstances, believed what God said. And I just want to give you a flavor of this simple trust in God that Abraham had. And we've already seen it. If you remember last week in in chapter four, verse 17, 
Matter of fact, just, just look a few verses, a verse up and you'll see it in your Bible. And listen to what the conclusion that Abraham comes to about God and God's promise. Verse 17, it says, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. That's where Abraham was in his faith. He believed that God could bring something from nothing. And that was not just talking about creation. I know last week we talked a little bit about that, but he was looking at his own life as well. He was unable with Sarah to produce an offspring. So from that barrenness, he believed that God was going to bring something from nothing. It was all about who God was and what God could do. And, and the author of Hebrews helps us flesh that out in Abraham's life. If you'll just write this down, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19. And if you remember, we, we, we went, when we went through Hebrews, we came across this. It says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son. Now, can you imagine that? God has given him this son, this promised seed in his old age. And now God says to him, take this promised seed, go build an altar and sacrifice him before me. Well, if I was Abraham, I would have had to say, uh, wait just one minute, God. You know, this is the only one that I have. And I am even older now than I was then. But what did Abraham do? Listen to what the text says. Through Isaac, your seed, your, you, you shall, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This is the same one God is saying, offer to me. Kill him, in other words. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. He believed that even if he went through with this, that God had promised through Isaac, your, your offspring going to be named through Isaac, that if he, he went through and he killed Isaac, that God would raise him from the dead. And we know the rest of that story, right? That's why Paul, or excuse me, that's why the author of Hebrews says at the end of that verse, figuratively, he did receive him back from the dead because what happened? Abraham had the knife ready. And it was the angel of God that stayed his arm from taking Isaac's life. So in essence, God did save Isaac and raise him from the dead because in Abraham's heart, he was already being obedient to what God had called him to do. Abraham believed that even if there were no way apparent before him, that God would make a way from no way. That's what saving faith is all about. It looks beyond our human ability. It believes God. It takes God at his word. And the question is, have you come to that place where you believe God? Have you come to the end of yourself and that you trust God and trust God alone? That's what saving faith looks like. And all of us have to get to that place where we come to the end of ourselves and we realize that it's about God and God alone. 
And when we get to that place, we're beginning to understand this idea of what saving faith is all about. So saving faith looks beyond our human inability. Saving faith believes God. It takes God at his word. And here's the difficult one in this passage. Saving faith is unshakable. And here's where the two phrases kind of go hand in hand. They're they're, um, hand in glove or tongue in groove, whatever illustration you want to use. He says in verse 19, talking about Abraham in in Romans chapter 4, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. And then the first part of verse 20 says, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. And at this point, I like what John MacArthur says about this text. At this point, we're asking ourselves, is this guy really human? Right? Is he some kind of supernatural being? Let me just quote for you what John MacArthur says about this aspect of Abraham's, Abraham's life. He, snapped, he says, now at this point, you begin to ask yourself, is this, is this guy human? I mean, he's not like us, is he? I said this to myself, honestly, John MacArthur says, as I went through this. If this is the kind of faith that saves, who in the world can come up to this? I mean, who can say that he never wavers in faith against all human inability? And MacArthur says, well, I certainly can't say that, and neither can you. And so we have ourselves a quandary at this moment. How is it that we can, Paul can say these things about Abraham? And if this is true about Abraham... How can I ever measure to that? Because I know me. And I have wavered and I have faltered in my faith. But just to give you some encouragement, I want to read something from Genesis chapter 17, verses 15 through 19. This is about Abraham. And this is the point in time where God comes and changes his name to Abraham from Abram. Ishmael's already been born. And he reiterates the promise that I'm going to bring you an offspring via Sarah. And here's how Abraham responds. Listen listen to what God says in, in Genesis chapter 17. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will... I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham, here's his response, okay? Keep in mind what we just read in in Romans. He didn't weaken in faith and he didn't waver in unbelief. Look how Abraham responds to what God just said. Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And then Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. So he says, hey, God, that's a bold statement, kind of ridiculous. You know, we got Ishmael over here. Maybe you ought to go to Ishmael and use him because I'm old. And I don't know if you notice, Sarah's pretty old herself. 
And here's what God says. God said no. Because God was going to make a way where there was no way. Now, does that sound like a man who didn't waver in his faith? Well, he did at that moment, didn't he? He was laughing at what God said was going to happen. So how can we reconcile this issue? Well, again, I'll quote John MacArthur. He says, all faith works through struggle, but the kind of faith that saves is the kind that lands on the confident side. You see, the ultimate end of Abraham's struggle was that he was confident in God. So the issue is not that we will never falter in our faith. We will falter in our faith. Will we be tested in our faith? Can you imagine Abraham? His whole life was a test, right? Because the from the, from the first time God promised him this promise of a seed to come, it was at least 25 years before Isaac was born. Man, that's a whole test of faith right there to go 25 years waiting on God to bring to you uh, the first aspect of the promise that he had promised you. I could imagine if, if I were Abraham, I would have faltered many times along the way of 25 years. But Abraham wrestled through his weakness in that moment. And he came to the place where he ultimately believed that God was going to do what God said he would do. And you and I are no different because our faith is tested. The Bible even tells us that our faith is tested. And it tells us that the testing of our faith brings about strength in our faith. Just a couple of verses to give you that idea from Scripture. 1 Peter 1.7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold and precious than, uh, more precious than gold, perishes through it, uh, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the implication is this trying and testing of our faith should cause us ultimately to praise and honor and glory God. It ought to strengthen our faith. James 1, verses 2 and 3. The Bible says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces stead fastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete lacking nothing so the point is we're all tested in our faith to some degree but true saving faith comes to the other side of that test with more confidence that God is going to accomplish what he said he's going to accomplish, that God is true to his word, that God in our context has accomplished righteousness in Christ Jesus for all of those who believe. So although we may waver in a moment, saving faith brings us to a place of strength and unwavering and unyielding faith in the God that we serve. So next, saving faith is ever strengthening. It doesn't stop growing. It doesn't stop strengthening. 
It continues to grow. And look at the next phrase in verse 20. But he grew strong in his faith. Now we saw him laugh just a moment ago. But through that conflict, he believed God and he continued to grow in his faith in Almighty God. Colossians chapter 2 verses 6 through 7 is a good cross-reference. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith. Our faith ought to grow. Our faith ought to strengthen. The longer we walk with the Lord, the longer we see God's faithfulness, right? We ought to grow in our strength and in our faith as Abraham grew in his strength and in his faith. Then saving faith gives glory to God. Look at the last phrase in verse 20. As he gave glory to God. Saving faith understands that salvation, that the promise of God, is all about God and not about us. Saving faith understands that God is the author and the finisher of our faith. Saving faith understands that we can do nothing, we have no ability, that it's all about what God has done. And Paul gives us a very clear picture of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 29 through 31. It says, So that no man may boast before God, but by his doing you are, meaning God's doing, by God's doing you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boast, boast in the Lord. Saving faith understands, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's what Abraham had in his life, this saving faith where the glory was God's glory and not his own glory. What about you today? Are you trying to glory in the things that you do? Are you trying to glory or boast in the, in the accomplishments that you achieve? If so, you have not understood saving faith. Saving faith understands that God gets the glory. And then finally, the last phrase that helps us understand the attributes of saving faith. In verse 21, saving faith is fully convinced. Verse 21 says, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. Well, that's a powerful sentence, isn't it? Abraham was unequivocally convinced that God would accomplish what God said he would do. That's saving faith. What about you and me? Have we come to that place in our life that we are fully convinced that God will do in Christ Jesus and has done in Christ Jesus what he said he has done? Listen to the author of Hebrews again. We we read this, but listen to it. Verse 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac your offspring be named. And here's this confident faith. 
he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Abraham believed God no matter what. If God said to sacrifice Isaac, he's going to sacrifice Isaac, and he believed God would bring him back because God had made a promise. He believed God's word, and he was confident in his faith in God. Another illustration I thought about, I mean, there'd be, there could be many of them. We can go to Daniel in the lion's den, right? He's a good one. Don't pray. What does he do? He prays. Goes to the lion den. Then he has faith in God. God saves him. The one that came to my mind was Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? You remember? Nebuchadnezzar made his statue. Whenever the music played, everybody was supposed to bow down and worship the statue. And some folks come ratted them out and says, hey, these Jews are not bowing down. Brought him before Nebuchadnezzar. He says, hey, y'all not bowing down? Nope, not bowing down. Well, I'm going to give you one more chance to bow down. If you don't bow down, you're going to be cast into the fiery furnace. And here's what they said to Nebuchadnezzar. Whenever he says, if you don't bow down, this is your last opportunity. I'm going to cast you into the fiery furnace. They said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O king Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In other words, we're already confident in what we're going to do. We don't have to negotiate with you. We don't have to answer to you about this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. That's pretty confident, isn't it? He's able to and he's going to do it. We don't even have to answer you in this matter. Our minds are made up. We are convinced in the faithfulness of the God that we serve. But to me, this is the, this is the most striking statement in this dialogue it's the very next sentence look at what it says they just got through saying we don't have to answer to you we believe that if god's going to deliver us and then they say but if not be it known to you O king that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden idol that you have set up now that's faith they says, listen, we believe God's going to save us from what you're doing. But even if he doesn't, we still trust our God. Man, have you come to that place in your life? He said, we get it all messed up in our life, don't we? What we do is we, we only think that God is providentially working in our life when everything is good. When good things happen to me, we say, God's blessed me, right? Well, is God good when we don't receive, quote, blessings? What about this? We pray for, and again, I know there are a lot of people who are dealing with, with cancer and, and sickness. And we pray. Sunday school we pray. Wednesday nights we pray. I'm sure you guys pray at home about all the needs of all those people who are, who are battling sickness and disease. And so many times we pray and when God does work and he, and he heals them or he, he cures them, we say, man, God bless them. All right? God is good. He blessed them. 
But what about the times when God chooses not to heal them? When God chooses not to cure them? Do you still think God is good? God is always good. That's the place we've got to get to. Where these three gentlemen were. We believe that God can save us and will save us. So we're not going to bow. But listen, even if he doesn't save us, we're still not going to bow in this moment. That's the kind of faith Abraham had. That's the kind of faith God is calling us to have. Saving faith is fully convinced in the promise of God, no matter the consequences in our life. So that leads us to point number two, and the final point. The application of saving faith. In the application of saving faith, I broke it out into three concepts. First is the immediate result of saving faith. And I think we see that in verse 22, and we've talked about this extensively through chapter 4 because it's a very important aspect that Paul is pointing out to us about this imputation of righteousness. So the immediate result of saving faith is the imputation of God's righteousness to the one who has believed. And that's what it says in verse 22. That is why his faith, meaning Abraham's faith, was counted to him as righteous. And we've talked about this doctrine of imputation in greater detail earlier in chapter 4. But just by way of reminder, you and I, as it relates to imputation, have three aspects of imputation to deal with. One is the imputation of Adam's sin to us. We are the children, the son and daughters of Adam when we come into existence in this world, when we are born. And because of that, Adam's sin, his guilt, is imputed to us because he was our federal head. We'll talk more about that in chapter 5. And because of that, we need help. Because if we die as sons and daughters of Adam in our sin, in our guilt, we will spend all of eternity under the wrath of Almighty God. And God made a way for that to be rectified. And you know, I quote this verse quite a lot, but it's important to our understanding of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He, meaning God the Father, made him, meaning Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to become sin for us or on our account. So what? that's the second aspect of imputation. God, now in Christ Jesus, what Romans chapter 3, the latter part, is all about, God takes our sin debt, our guilt, and he imputes that, he counts that to Christ's account. He put it on Christ on the cross of Calvary. So on the cross, Christ dealt with our sin debt. He dealt with our guilt and our rebellion against God. And God crushed him, as the prophet Isaiah says, Isaiah 53.10, under the weight of his wrath on the cross of Calvary to deal with sin once and for all, as the author of Hebrews reminds us of. Now, for those who will, 
by faith believe that Christ did accomplish on the cross everything that was necessary to appease God's wrath against sin and to cover or eradicate our sin debt, if we will place our faith in the finished work of Christ, the rest of that verse says that we might become the righteousness of God. Now God has made a way for those who believe for his righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, to be accredited to our account. That's the result of this saving faith. It is instantaneous, and we'll see that more clearly when we get to Romans chapter 8. In, in God's mind, in God's construct of redemption, this imputation is a done deal for those who believe in Christ Jesus. It's not something we have to wait for. It's something that already happens instantaneously in the moment that we come to faith in Jesus Christ. So the immediate result of saving faith is the imputation of God's righteousness to our account. That's why Paul can write the way he does in Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are called in Christ. Right? Right now, in this moment, if you place your faith in Christ, God has said, not guilty. Not because of who you are, because you've been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Then the second aspect of this application, that's what happened to Abraham, but that's the same thing that can happen to us as well. The second thing is the future ramification of saving faith. Look at verse 23. But the words... It was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. And a tangentory idea that comes from that phrase is that scripture is relevant to every generation, right? What God says in his word Although relevant in a particular point in time in history for a particular person and group of people is also relevant for us today in an applicable way. Because God was working in Abraham to produce redemption through Christ for us. So salvation, God's plan of redemption, it's always been plan A. There is no plan B. From the very beginning, before the creation of this world, God had already determined to do things the way he is doing them. And so when he speaks to Abraham, this promise to Abraham was a promise that was meant ultimately for the world. That's why he says you will be the father of many nations. A couple cross-references to, to validate this particular truth. Galatians, and again, I've already told you, you ought, you ought to read Galatians in conjunction with Romans. Uh, it's almost like a cliff note versions, version of the book of Romans. Galatians 3, verses 7 through 9. Know then that it is those of faith. Well, what has Paul been talking about this whole chapter? Starting in chapter 3, it's about faith, right? Faith in God. Know then that, the, that it is those of faith, <coughs> excuse me, who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. It's 
So what is he telling us? Again, plan A. It's always been God's design to do this. He preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So we become part and parcel to the blessing that Abraham received when we believe God the way Abraham believed God. When we place our faith in the promised one who is Jesus Christ. And we've already seen this. If you flip back maybe one page or just look across the page in your Bible. In Romans chapter 4, you remember verses 7 and 8? This is where Paul interjects a quote from Psalm 32 that David gave us many, many years ago, talking about this blessedness. And we ask this question, who is the blessed man of verses 7 and 8 in Romans chapter 4? Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count or will not impute his sin. Well, our conclusion then was the person of faith is the blessed one. And Paul validates that in Galatians for us, right? Those who place their faith in Christ Jesus are blessed with Abraham. It's the same faith. There was no Old Testament concept of salvation and a New Testament concept of salvation. How was Abraham saved? He was saved by faith in the promise of God. How are you and I saved? We are saved by faith in the promise of God who was revealed in Jesus Christ our Lord. So all of those who place their faith in Christ Jesus, whether Jew or Gentile, you see how Paul's bringing it full circle for us? How did he start this book? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God and the salvation to everyone who does what? Believe, right? That word faith. And he says, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So what is Paul telling us? God's plan has always been to redeem from both Jew and Gentile those who would place their faith in Jesus Christ. That is the gospel message. That is the saving faith of Abraham. Galatians 3.14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Well, how does that blessing come? So that we might receive the promised spirit. How? Through faith. It is faith that brings us into this blessing that Abraham had of the righteousness of God. And our faith is in a particular object, and that object is Jesus Christ. Then the third and and final thing is the inescapable reason of saving faith. Well, you already know the inescapable reason of it. And the inescapable reason of this imputed righteousness is faith. Faith is what caused God to account to Abraham this righteousness. Look at verse 24. It will, it will be counted to us who believe. How do we gain this righteousness? How do we become part of this blessed, blessing that Abraham has? It's when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. And we've already talked about this issue of, of hope and faith, right? The author of Hebrews helps us understand it to some degree. 
Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hope, we're looking for something, we're longing for something. Faith, we are convinced that it's going to happen. That's saving faith. And it's important that we have the right object of saving faith. Because you can have faith in a lot of things. And it can be a wrong, invalid faith. We must place our faith in the God who can raise the dead. Look what the text says. In him who raised from the dead our Lord. That's the one Abraham believed in. That's the one you and I have to believe in. This God that can raise from the dead and did raise from the dead Jesus Christ to validate that Christ was the Messiah. He was the promised one. He did accomplish what he intended to accomplish. Listen, uh, 1 Peter 1, 20 through 21 He, meaning Christ, was foreseen before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God. When was he foreknown? Before the foundation of the world. Plan A, right? Before God said, let there be light. Before we read in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning was God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had already predetermined that God the Son would come and sacrifice himself as a propitiatory offering for you and for me. It's always been plan A. And those who believe in what God has done in Christ will receive this righteousness and be among the blessed as Abraham was among the blessed. And he goes on to say, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So the object of our faith is paramount. We must have faith in God. Romans 10, 9 and 10 verifies this as well. And the significance of Jesus' resurrection is intrinsically important to this idea of salvation. Look at what Paul says in in Romans 10, 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. How important is it that we believe that God did what he said he did in Christ Jesus, even to the point of raising him from the dead? The object of our faith is the God who raises the dead, and in particular, who has raised Jesus Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand where he ever intercedes for you and for me. And then uh, the oblation of our saving faith. What is is this significance, this, this outcome, this of this faith, the finished work of Jesus Christ. Look what he says in this phrase, and I just kind of broke this last verse down into three phrases, kind of running, uh, a a running point. The first part of that phrase is, who was delivered up. We've already seen that before the foundation of the world, right? He delivered Christ Jesus up. It was God's predetermined plan to bring Christ in. He didn't wait to have to see what Adam and Eve were going to do 
before he created Adam and Eve, before he created anything, he already determined that Christ was coming. Right? Look at Acts chapter, after chapter 2 and verse 23. Paul, or excuse me, Peter makes this claim in his sermon. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It was God's predetermined plan. The Trinity, the triune God, decreed before the creation of this world that the second person of the Trinity would come and pay the price for sin on the cross of Calvary. Then the the phrase goes on. Who was delivered up for our trespasses. Christ was delivered up, but not only for no reason, but for our trespasses. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4. For I delivered to you, this is Paul speaking, as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That's the reason Christ went to the cross of Calvary, to bear the punishment of your sin and my sin to make a way for us to be reconciled with God. And Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians that he, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance to the scripture. That's the heart of the gospel. Jesus Christ came, he lived, he died, he was buried, and he raised again. And those who place their faith in that finished work of Jesus Christ will find the blessing of God's righteousness in our Lives And, the, and the, the conclusion of the verse is, who was delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification. You see the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ? The cross means nothing if Christ doesn't come out of the grave. If Christ is still in the grave, as Paul says in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, if our hope is in this life only, we are the most pitiable people. Christ Jesus validated who he was when he broke open that grave and came out of that tomb. And it's paramount that we understand that and believe that. Paul makes that clear in 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. That's why Paul writes the way he writes. That's why it says Abraham believed the God who raised the dead. That's why he tells us in Romans chapter 10, if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe that God raised him from the dead. That's how God validated for the world that Christ Jesus accomplished redemption. Where is your faith today? Where does your hope lie today? If it lies in anything other than the finished work of Jesus Christ, the promised one that God promised way back yonder to Abraham. If your faith is in anything other than that, then your faith is futile. You need to throw yourself on the mercy and grace of God and come to that place where you look beyond your own human ability because you don't have any ability to make yourself right with God. You've got to come to the place where you are convinced that God has done what needed to be done for redemption. And he did it in Christ Jesus, and you believe what God did in Christ Jesus. If that's not your kind of saving faith today, then I would say to you, you need to examine yourself to be sure that you are in the faith. 
Father, we come to you this day, and we thank you for this time that you've given us in your word. We trust, Father, that you would use this word in this hour to help us to be more like you, to help us to come to a clear understanding of what salvation is and what saving faith is. And for those who hear this, those who are here today who may not be saved, that they would come to faith in Christ. And for those of us who are saved, Lord, that our faith would continue to be strengthened as we continue to walk with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.